0: Special Operations,
1: Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 128 of The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with Dave Park. We are joined tonight by our guest, Eric Olerick, who also goes by Ollie. He served in the SEAL teams and uh, was also a squadron commander with SEAL Team 6. And we're going to get into all, all sorts of adventures that he had. Uh, but first, we're going to have a quick word from one of our sponsors.
0: Yeah, so uh, our first sponsor for tonight uh, is our friends over at ATAC Fitness. Uh, they sell these great kits. And, um, Eric, this is all stuff that you'd be, like, very familiar with. They prep people for... Um, For selections, Uh, they sell these kits that have, like, these really high-quality fins, uh, these rocket fins, vented, open-heel, sturdy construction, very firm. Uh, The snorkel, they have uh, both the low-volume and the high-volume mass. So if you're just, you know, if you're not going to do any kind of purging exercises and you get the low-volume, but generally get the high-volume so you can purge it out. And then uh, they all come... With a couple of these uh, nylon or braided ropes so that you can sit there and practice your knots underwater, which we all know is very Uh. important. Yeah. No, they're really well-thought-out kits. That was a horrible knot. But, uh, yeah, check them out. Um, Selection starts here. So if you're preparing yourself for a selection or if you're just trying to get back into shape, finning is a great way to do it. Uh, Finning will take it out of you, but it's also easier on the joints than most activities that we do these days. Um, Use our promo code Team Ten for ten percent off, and that's Atac Fitness, A-T-A-C, fitness.com. Um, Also, we have an Instagram giveaway that we were supposed to do just before Christmas, um, but we're going to do it now because we had the pre-recorded shows. So I'm gonna—we didn't have many people register. We're giving away a hoodie, a T-shirt, and a coffee mug. My Deadpool die bag—a twelve-sided die. Since only twelve entries uh, the, for the hoodie. Number two is, I can't read that name. Let me pull this up. <clears throat> I printed it out. Is at mddaniels.1401. We'll get that to you. We'll reach out to you. For the t-shirt is also uh, mddaniels. So you got two of them. And then for the coffee mug is the Chris Schumacher. So we will reach out to you uh, for, to get your sizes and for mu- uh, and mailing addresses. Thanks, guys.
1: All right. So let's jump right into it here with Eric. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show tonight, man. Uh, you are the third Navy SEAL we have had on the show. We have been a somewhat SEAL skeptical program, to tell you the truth. But we are very happy to have you here. Uh, I'm just throwing some shade because we have to because we're Army guys. Um, But I'm not joking. I I really do appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of your life and your experiences with us. Uh, And the first question I wanted to throw your way is the same one I, you know, hit all of our guests with right off the bat, is we'd like to hear a little bit about your upbringing and sort of that path that you took growing up that eventually led you into the Navy.
2: Yeah, so on the SEAL subject first, If you just want to get it done with a little bit of flair, you just got to ask a team guy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, Jack, Dave. Um, What brought me in the Navy? Very interesting path. Top Gun. I was a sixth grader in middle school. Uh, You got Tom Cruise. Uh, Kelly McGillis, who's not so good right now, but anyway, um, I had a, a math teacher here locally in a small town in northwest Montana, and he flew F fours and had been in the Navy, and he was a little bit of a of a egotistical pilot. He would wear his bomber jacket to school and drive a motorbike and Ray Bands and. Pretty much Tom Cruise, only in Northwest Montana. Um, for a kid that had never seen anything like that, that was a little bit intriguing. Um, I, ex- I, I started doing a little bit of research. I expect an interest to potentially go to one of the service academies. He told me that I wasn't smart enough, and I was dumb, and I'd never do it. So anger is one of my better motivators. <laughs> so I reached on down, and I was like, all right. All right, buddy. Well, we'll get to the bottom of this. Um, and I started working pretty hard. Uh, yeah, it turns out that I was really good at working hard, but I wasn't as good on the SATs as probably a lot of really good uh, spec ops operators aren't. Um, my dad had grown up in a town that had a even smaller than Whitefish, which was 3,000 people. He'd grown up in Eastern Montana. He had a graduating class of eight um, and not a stoplight in town, just a yield sign. And uh, one of the kids in his class was now uh, really good friends with Senator Conrad Burns from Montana. So I called Senator Conrad Burns, told him that I wasn't a stellar standout in the grades department. Uh, I was a good athlete, but not like a a uh, NCAA level athlete, um, but that I would do whatever was asked of me, I'd, I'd work until I was dead and that I wouldn't let him down. So he gave me a primary nomination in the Naval Academy. Um, and went to the Naval Academy, started uh, with the prep school in 1994, uh, Naval Academy in 1995. Um, the more I kind of hung around pilots, the more I just, it didn't rub me right. The more I hung out around SEALs. There's a couple SEALs around the, the academy yard there. The more I was like, man, those guys are for each other. They work hard, play hard. You you earn your, your respect. Uh, your credibility is kind of everything. And that just resonated with me on a really deep level. And I was like, that's what I need to do. Um, so being a, A young man that grew up in Montana, um, hunting elk in the fall, fishing, running rivers in the spring and summer, uh, running chainsaws, you know, to cut your firewood, splitting it. Uh, Hard work was, I wasn't afraid of it. Um, And that whole collective background, though, I didn't know how to swim very well, coming from northwest Montana. So I had to start working really hard there at the Nail Academy for a couple of years, every single morning in those pools, um, beating myself into being competent in the water. But uh, by the time senior year rolled around, we kind of took our final, you know, physical fitness test and the pool of folks for 16 seal slots. Um, at the start of our junior year, it was about 240 dudes that wanted to do it. Um, they kind of whittled it down. I think they interviewed around 40 of us. Um, And then out of those 40, they picked 16 to go to Buds. So I was one of the lucky 16 that was selected. I had a great group of dudes around me. We were really tight in camaraderie. And, you know, off to Buds we went as soon as we graduated in 1999, the summer of that. So that's really what led me in the Navy. It was driven by anger. Um, I did. When I was a senior at the Naval Academy, one of my younger cousins in Montana, the the town called Missoula, was in the same math teacher's class. I sent him a I sent him a T-shirt with my name and the year on it and the Navy Naval Academy crest on it. And I was like, hey, wear that to school. So we did. And the teacher was like, you know, what is that? And my cousin was like, yeah, that's my uh, that's my cousin. He's getting ready to graduate from the Naval Academy. You taught him seventh or sixth grade math and whitefish. That's right. We, <laughs> play we, in we got game. ours. Playing the long game. Is yep. that
1: is that your buds class number behind you on the the memorabilia on your bookshelf? Uh, no. Oh okay.
2: Uh, that's actually. Um, I took an SDV on a really cool dive op, and uh, I didn't know it, but. When they went to scrap that SDV, um, my platoon chief—I love him to death. He's a great guy. His name's Paul Robinson. He 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 took the prop off that SDV because it was quite a significant dive. It's one of the harder nights I've ever had in the SEAL teams. Um, and he he cut the prop off and then put a Trident on it. And that's what he gave me when I was getting out of the Navy. So it's 813 for STV number 813.
1: Uh, okay. I'm going to circle yeah. back around on that story for sure. <laughs> uh, okay. So you, you play the long game, get some payback on your uh, sixth grade math uh, teacher for being a smart ass. And, but now you're in the Navy. Now you're, you're going through – you pass BUDS. Now you're going to SQT. You said this is 1999.
2: Yeah, well, 2000, basically okay. went to Bud's in 99, graduated, you know, early 2000. Um, you know, it's it's just a long, good, hard kick in the teeth. Every frog man's got to do it. There's no credit given. And it's what's required to prove that you're ready to, to have what it takes to either to really, truly be a part of the team or not. And, you know, the strength of the pack is the wolf. The strength of the wolf is the pack. That's the way the teams work.
1: And what was it for you like when you finally did show up at a team as the you know, I don't know, uh, forgive me for not being familiar with all the Navy terminology as a platoon leader.
2: Like what was the biggest challenge or yeah, how did it well, what feel? What was it like or, for you
1: walking into the team room with, you know, 16 cockhard young Navy SEALs and you got a butter lead them. bar, right?
0: Uh, no, uh, no yeah. practical experience, but you're in charge.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, I would accredit, um, I got some really good advice straight out of the gate by one warrant officer. Uh, his name's Jimmy Duke and another officer who had been a prior enlisted guy. His name's Matt Burns. You may have heard of him. He's an admiral now. Um, and, uh, Matt Burns told me, uh, basically maximize the talents of your your men, and don't try to beat them at it. Just allow, you need to be the conduit that represents the maximization of their talents. Mm -hmm. And he was spot on with that. And then Jimmy Duke's advice was, hey, slow down and keep your mouth closed. If they want you to speed up, they'll tell you, and if they wanna hear your opinion, they'll tell you. So between those two things, you got it. You're like, okay, work hard at being an operator but understand your role as an officer which is to take care of the men and advocate for them because in that two-way street in the teams they will not let you down if you can if you can get it to where their services are required they're going to die trying mm-hmm. and, and I mean you would too but they're not going to let you down. That's that's the two-way mutual respect between the officers enlisted in the teams. And because you go through the same training and you are all kicked in the teeth at a mutual level, they know that you have the grit, if required, when all the chips are down, that you're going to be as solid as they are.
1: And then you you were going into you know taking control of this platoon and starting to train them going through your first workup just prior to nine eleven, right?
2: Yes. So, uh, there were, there were three officers in the platoon just for clarity. I was one of the junior, Mm -hmm. we had a a mid to senior level Lieutenant that was in charge of it. Um, and, uh, we were in the very final two days of, uh, of an 18 month plus workup. And then we were going to get some leave and then we were going to head to the, to the med um for some engagements, some bilateral engagements with partners and 9-11 hit. So we were already almost there on packing our bags for deployment. And you know, AQ flew those jets into the towers, towers dropped, we're at war. Um you know the mentality at the time, and I mean you guys remember this. It was like like, oh my gosh, I mean America just got I mean just just punched straight in the face. And there was almost like, you know, all of a sudden now there's this name called Al Qaeda out on the street and everybody's wondering like, where are all the terrorists within our own society? And like, mm-hmm. there was some angst and paranoia. Um, but eight days later, you know, I was, I was part of an advanced team that just went straight to uh, road to Spain uh, linked up there at the seal unit that we used to have there in Southern Spain and started to coordinate for the, the Theatre Roosevelt Battle Group, the carrier that was then gonna immediately deploy off the East Coast out of Virginia, come through the Med, go through the Suez, and we're gonna go park right off Pakistan and start uh-huh. start taking care of business. Um so yeah, you know I mean as a as a brand new uh ensign, eight days after nine eleven okay like y- you need to go coordinate the the physical security of, a, of an aircraft carrier is going to go through the Suez so it can go get after bomb and the guys that had just dropped the towers. Uh, simultaneously, you're going to, you know, stay tied to your SEAL platoon to be ready to do whatever kind of spec ops role that they're going to ask of you when we start to push on into Afghanistan to, to hold those accountable.
1: What ended up being that role for your platoon through that deployment?
2: Um, you know, I... So, Jim Mattis wrote a book um, called "Call Sign Chaos," and uh, in that book, he articulates uh, how he was—I believe he was a one-star general at the time—and how he led the the furthest uh, land invasion or amphibious assault from the the Indian Ocean into a, a place called Camp Rhino in southern Afghanistan. Uh, That was hand in glove with uh, Captain Bob Harward at the time, who was a SEAL, and uh, so my platoon played a part in that, in going into Rhino ahead of the Marines and doing an area recce. The Marines came in and started to give a lily pad in southern Afghanistan to then launch more forces up into Kandahar. um, As the you know, um, Team Jawbreaker, which was obviously the CIA and SF guys, started in the north with uh, um, General Dostum and the, the Northern Alliance mm-hmm. um, folks. They started mowing their way south, and the Marines and the SEALs. We came in. Sorry, they were in the north, moving south, and we started in the south and started to move north. And that just started up, started to set up the operational bases that we that we would then use and. You know, 2002 in Afghanistan, I didn't go in with my platoon initially when they went into Rhino. Um, I was follow on uh, in Kandahar um, with just being a junior officer, like they kind of task you around as you need them. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard to watch your buddies go off to war and you're standing there like, good luck, gents. Um, but uh, I came in in January and... What I would say is in 2002, in January 2002, in, in Afghanistan, you weren't going to get shot by an insurgent or shot by a Taliban guy because they were they had all been bombed and they were moving for the border. Um, but, like, the amount of ordnance in that country was mind-blowing. Um, I, I helped the EOD guys just outside of Kandahar Airfield and... We went out daily and did, uh, like, basically, like, uh, ordnance demolition. And, I mean, we'd drive down the road and there would be, I mean, there there were just, there were RPG warheads, like, just scattered around the roads. And uh, we were trying to get into Tarnak Farms because Tarnak Farms is where Al-Qaeda had filmed a propaganda video. And so it was kind of strategic. They didn't know what kind of SSE we were gonna get, but they're like, hey, we gotta get to Tarnak. So we me and a couple EOD guys who are told, hey, we gotta get to Tarmac. Let's take an FBI guy along with this so they can start to do some sensitive site exploitation. And we were working our way down these roads to get to Tarnak. And um, I mean, I mean, you just see like, you know landmines pronged landmines next to rpgs next to fighting positions next to 250 pound bombs and as long as it wasn't in the road it wasn't a problem um because we just had to get there but when we got to tarnak farms um there were there were mines that the russians had put in and then mines that the taliban had put in and al-qaeda had put in and then um on our initial onslaught, we had gone through and bombed the whole thing. And I mean, there were just like chunks of earth, like lifted up and put up on the, on these compound walls that, I mean, they had like three generations of fighting in mines vertically on these walls. And I mean, when we bombed it, it was full of people and animals. So there were just, you know, there were pieces and parts everywhere. Um, I mean, like for a, for a brand new, you know, it, and send team guys straight in the Navy. Uh, I took some sand from that place as a reminder that this is what true war is. Mm-hmm. Um, just the, the smell, the decay, the level of violence that happened um, for years. It was, it, you know, it's a, uh, it, it, it made your hair stand up and you're like, all right, if I don't pay attention, I'm a dead man. That's all there is to it. Right. And, you know, I mean, there was a seal there that stepped on some unexploded ordinance and, you know, he passed away like two weeks after I was there. Um, we had a couple of Afghans right next to us. They got blown up. I mean, it was just, you know, it's it's one of those kind of touch and go areas. But that was my impression of Afghanistan in 2002 right after it. And we were bombing the Taliban out. And we all saw Anna Kalanda building. We saw what was happening with the Pakistan border and you know, we're, you know, we're 30 cock strong pipe hitting team guys sitting on right off the coast of Pakistan. And we're like, that's it. Put us in. We'll close that border. We'll just go run wreckies off the high points with, with glass and call in gas. Like, you know, we can hem this, we can shut this back door right now. Um, and you know, unfortunately the The Bush administration decided that they didn't—they wanted to limit the exposure that Americans were taking. They didn't want to have uh, dead American soldiers on their hands, and I'm sure I guarantee you some of us would have got shot. Um, But it was, in our in our opinion, it would have been worth it. Um, And uh, so they kind of left it up to the local tribes to try and close that back door. And AQ had the inroads, and they paid them off, and they were into Pakistan. Yeah. So. Yeah, here we go for 10 more years before we can we've, get to Bin Laden.
1: Yeah, we've talked about some of these stories with like Clay Hutmacher, talked about that overland, uh, you know, with 160th um, into Afghanistan. We've talked to Jamie Caldwell, who's one of the operators who is there for uh, Anaconda and everything. And I mean, it's just so interesting to hear the, this, these stories, these big campaigns from different perspectives. Um, and, and this is one we hadn't heard before. And I want to to come back to you, Eric. We got a quick ad from our sponsor. Uh, We'll be back in one minute. Our channel is dedicated to providing viewers with a nuanced and realistic look into the world of the armed forces, defense, and national security. But lately, these subjects have become partisan, even though they shouldn't be. These issues are complex and oftentimes misunderstood. This is a huge problem for all of us. Thankfully, Ground News is working to solve it. Ground News is a first-of-its-kind website and app that lets you compare how a single news story is being covered across the political spectrum. It's not simply a news aggregator, it's a tool, with tons of easy-to-use features that help you analyze the news so you can be confident you're getting the whole story. The bias distribution chart shows which media outlets are reporting on an issue and where they fall on the political spectrum. You can even compare headlines to how phrasing changes between news outlets. But our favorite feature has to be the blind spot feed. The blind spot feed shows you stories that are underreported on the left and the right. If you're looking for a better way to stay informed about current events around the world, check out Ground News by visiting ground.news/teamhouse to download the free app.
2: Yeah, no, we were winning, um, and it, we had a grace period in there, whether we did it right or wrong. Uh, I don't know. I just I do know that it was wrong not to not to shut that back door between Afghanistan and Pakistan with their own guys. I'll I'll, I would swear by that until the day I died. And I'm sure, as as you kind of pointed out, Jack, there's a number of other people with different perspectives. I would be amazed if they didn't see it the same, even from the perspectives that they had that were different than mine. Um, And then kind of fast forward. I ended up back in Afghanistan from 2003
0: to 2004. One second. We're, I,
2: we're muted. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. We're definitely not muted. No, you're good. We're back.
1: It's okay. back. They're, they're just delayed. Yeah, uh, just a delay. Sorry. Go ahead, Eric. I apologize. Um. So didn't close off the back door. Was that that kind of like the the culmination of that deployment, though, is kind of at its end point by then? Um, you know, we
2: uh they they held on to my platoon for a bit longer um and we kind of became a uh a, a water-based platoon they we stayed up in the just off of Pakistan and they asked us to board a number of ships that were affiliated with U, with the UBL company and they didn't really have good refined intelligence about what would be on them they weren't really sure but they didn't want those boats going from Pakistan to Somalia without somebody taking a look at them first. So we we did a, a number of non-compliant night you know visit board siege and search search and seizure VBSS um, boardings um, with a couple of seal platoons and some some uh, some navy navy soft helicopters um, and that that was some great water work I just wish that we would have had better intelligence um, on potentially interdicting some of the terrorist either logistics supply or people that were getting from Pakistan fleeing the bombing in Afghanistan and working their way into Africa. Um, and then that was the end of that that deployment. Mm-hmm. um headed back to to school back up and do another workup.
0: Eric, for you know you make it sound so casual. you know you're doing these shipboardings, these VBSS. Can you kind of describe that process to our viewers? So they, cause it's not a simple process you're getting, you're talking <laughs> about a ship, right? Like you're not yep. like waving, say, say pulled over, roll down your windows, license and registration.
2: So, um, it is, a, it is, a, it starts out as a geometry problem. So you've got something that's moving in the open ocean and it's got hundreds of miles of trajectory to go, and you got to place yourself in a in in a similar sized ship that can you know travel at a similar speed somewhere proximity along that track to then be able to kick out your you know in, in this case we were using ribs rigid hold inflatable boat like an eleven meter diesel powered fairly robust um, naval craft you know a small craft. And you basically kind of bring the small craft in fairly close, kind of wait until that ship is kind of going right by you. And then you, you slide right in where their wake zone is so that they're kind of blind radar with a radar pitcher. And then you come right up, um, alongside it. You have to, you have to, it's a game of cat and mouse. It's really easy to get compromised. um, but if you do it right, you kind of slide on up there. Um, you end up putting up a, a pole with a real small ladder, and then you start getting guys climbing that ladder. And you know those two ships are your small boats crashing up into the hole of the big one, and you're trying not to get smashed between them. And it's at night, and you're on nods, and you got your machine gun. And I mean that's that's what that's what being a team guy is. It's dark. It's cold. It's wet. And you got to get it done. Um, You get enough guys up there on board that ship to where you feel like you have enough fighting force to be able to hold your own. And then as more guys start to come up, then you go up into the basically the bridge where they're driving the boat from. Um, One of those boats, it was or one of those ships that we took down. uh, You know, I'll never forget. We I think I was like maybe number three or four on the in in that train moving on up to the bridge and uh we got up there and I was just kind of below one of the the windows on the bridge and I just peeked up to see how many dudes were in that bridge that we were going to have to deal with as soon as we as soon as we breached that that main door and there was one guy sitting there staring at a computer screen right with a light coming at him he's like the midnight watchman at 2 30 in the morning <laughs> and right at that time i heard uh the number one and two man had kind of opened that door about an inch or two and they just slid a a flashbang grenade in there and i heard it like ding, 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 ding going on the floor and i saw that guy he's like looking at his computer and he's a, he like looks over at the sound of this grenade rolling at him and I was like, oh, bad night, bad night for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I just dropped my head just so I wouldn't, you know, see the flash, that thing going off and it, it blind me. And <sighs> obviously it just rocked that guy's world. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, we went in and, uh, and, but, you know, like I said, we just didn't have the Intel and, um, you know, we, we didn't end up finding that hard cell of terrorists from AQ that were fleeing the bombing coming through Pakistan and then looking to go from Pakistan to Somalia. You know, we boarded some boats like that um, and we just, you know, they were UBL affiliated boats. They were part of the, that construction company and things that he had as a construction conglomerate, but they just didn't have, they weren't supporting the terrorists that we were looking to find, uh, unfortunately. So but uh yeah, a little bit more of a complex problem, Dave, but um
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten
2: lucky. Lucky? We just weren't quite there on targeting AQ at that point.
0: Yeah. No, I, it's, you know, it's funny because to you, it was just work and it was probably exciting when you did it in training, but then at, at a certain point in time, it's just, okay, we're going to do this again. But I think that for people who are not familiar with that concept, not understanding the power of the seas, you know, when you're out there, you know, and like you said, you're all kitted up. You got your nods on, you're banging your nods on, on shit, your depth per- perception isn't that great at close. And the whole time, if you fall off, the the best thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to be in open water. The best thing, you know, if you don't get caught up in, in the, in the screw of the ship, if you don't like land and break your back on your own boat, like, you know, so.
2: Have you, have you done that before? I have I not. mean, like you're, ex- you, you haven't. Okay. So you, you're actually, you're grasping a lot of the dangers right there and exactly what guys are dealing with. And then, you know when when it's a really big ship when it's like a carnival cruise liner and your climb now goes from like a 25 foot climb to a 70 foot climb at night on that and you're you're looking down at your own boat and you got you know 40 more feet to go oh yeah that's <laughs> yeah. that yeah i mean like that like, that's where your man pants come out right yeah. like you know it's like uh uh-uh, uh this is like this is this those guys that couldn't pass the rope climbs and buds—that's why they're not there. <laughs> right,
0: right. Now that's an extreme, yeah. and, and and that's an extreme amount. And when you're cold, your hands are numb. Like even doing things like that, like oh my god, am I? I can't even feel my hands. I hope I can hold on to this.
2: Yeah, it's. Um, uh, they have some some guys on the gear have this thing they call the Fifi hook, and it's a little gear that they'll girth or a little hook that they'll girth hitch in. On their uh, on their on their chest rig, that they can pull out and clip into that uh, little steel cable caving ladder, um, and take a rest and shake out their arms. But it's called the Fifi hook because it's like, hey, whoever uses the goddamn Fifi hook, do you belong here? Yeah, you know. But anyway, I never ever had a Fifi hook on my gear. Just for the record, I've never had a Fifi hook. I knew that I could get my ass through that.
1: <laughs> so. At this point, do you start into that sort of uh, deployment cycle that everyone came to know very well of deploying, coming back home, going on leave, training back up for the next one, and heading back overseas?
2: Yeah. um, I did another uh, deployment. That's exactly it. Um, Came off that deployment. We stood up SEAL Team 10, did – Did a workup that was all centered on Afghanistan, uh, mountainous fighting, um, a lot of a lot of recce, a lot of long-range sniper stuff, a lot of observation stuff, Um, and then you know refit, bang October two thousand three, right back into it, flying straight into Bagram, hubbing out of Bagram, doing a lot of uh, of Humvee-based long-range mobility. patrols and a lot of DAs through 2003 and 2004 and uh like you know almost got killed a number of times that was that was uh and that was when the insurgency in Afghanistan was starting to pick up and that's when you were starting to be like okay I'm not going to get killed by unexploded ordnance like the first one like the first rotation in Afghanistan but it's like I'm going to get killed because I'm either going to get shot or I'm going to get, you know, step on an IED or drive over an IED. Um, and, you know, we did, I don't know, we did a lot of, of direct action raids. We did a lot of driving about, we got shot at a lot. We shot at a, a lot of people. And I would say it was about month four of that platoon where we'd almost been killed a number of times that I finally felt like, okay, I un- I'm a mountain guy, like I come from the mountains. And so I grasped fighting in the mountains relatively quickly. Um, and it was month four of that platoon is where I really felt like, okay, I understand the game. I know how this is played and I can't believe we haven't been killed to this point, but now we can own these guys. And that's when I felt we really turned the corner on being effective um, in the way we ran our reconnaissance missions, the way we, we never gave up the high ground. You cannot give up the high ground, the way that we had approached problems. Um, so that was 2003, 2004. Um, it was a long, long, hard uh, period of time there, about seven months. Um,
1: yeah. And at this point, you, uh- were you all already into like targeting high value targets and the HVT hunts and that sort of thing?
2: You know, at that point in time, uh, we were, we were right down the road from the, the deployed JSOC guys and, you know, they were doing the HVT hunting. They were doing the HBI hunting, but, I mean, we, we all knew each other. We're all frogs. We're all partying in the same bars in Virginia. We're all, you know, we know one another. And so they would pass off targets that would help them shape their HVIs. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's hand in glove, but when it needed to be done at a higher level, like it's them on it. And, uh, you know, uh, on that deployment, um, I was exposed to you know that was my first exposure to Army sF and uh you know i I learned a lot from the special forces guys. I learned a lot about how they dealt with indige. I learned a lot about how they ran their ops and you know i I had one warrant officer at an army warrant in particular that taught me more about how to set people up and draw them out and mm-hmm. bring them to you and then hammer them than than anybody to that date so um, it, it, with jsoc we were at, we were in addition uh, with our other uh, guys working within soda we worked very well together and it, it was it was a really eye-opening experience in that regard
0: Eric, right, you, you mentioned that up into that point, you you felt you like you were lucky that you know you did it took you guys a while to find your legs, and I think that was true of everybody in Afghanistan. You know, it was it was a type mm-hmm. of warfare that people hadn't been training for. You know, CQB had been the sexy thing, and you know, how did you feel as though because I, I haven't been to Buds, and I know you guys do a, a a combat school after that, or like a a land combat school after that, and then your workups. Do you feel as though? The seals were prepared for land warfare adequately in that way, or do you feel that there were like lessons learned through that through that time that were taken back to the training house?
2: No, I mean it's uh, you know I, I would say that at the at the at the smaller scale of land warfare and engagement, IADS, flanking, bounding, maneuvering, like any of that stuff, like you know. We we could hand the we could hand the of their ass any day of the week. What I consider to be like competent at it is it's the larger game. Mm-hmm. It's the wait a minute, like okay, they're moving this over here and we know about it. It's actually not this that's important to them, it's that. And when you go at that, you you can't go at it from the valleys in a Humvee. Mm -hmm. They've got you 50 miles out. Mm -hmm. Like you have to go at it two valleys over that they would never expect people to go two valleys over in a helicopter at night that they don't know exactly where it landed. And then have guys that know how to hide their tracks Mm -hmm. and make it up over two different valley systems for nine miles without getting tracked and actually being at the right time in the right location for what's important in this region. And so I say it, it's more about, it's, you know, I hate the saying, but it was understanding chess, not checkers. Right. And we, you know, the preparation for training a, hey, like, you know, if, if you can't learn how to, how to run an IAD, a, an immediate action drill and get yourself either get people or get out of an ambush, you're never going to be a good team guy. Right. So, Um, that's not what I'm talking about, which I think is a lot of what the training focus is. And, you know, I mean, CQB and all that, I mean, that's absolutely a pickup basketball game and you got to read your buddy and go with the flow and things like that. But I'm talking more about the, the chest, not checkers and that chess that chess piece is what I felt at four months. I was like, okay. I'm stuck. Like we're starting to collectively understand the checkers piece here or sorry, the chess piece. Uh And we actually started being effective. Right.
0: Yeah. It's the, it's the idea of going from the sexy, you know, fast roping on the X to, you know, two terrain features away so that they can't, so that they, you can mask your infill. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, And I credit that, um, the ability to understand how to be two trained features way and then close on them and not let them know that you closed on it and be competent enough with your mountainsmanship and your woodsmanship and your and your skill set. I, I credit a lot of that to, you know, my upbringing in Montana where I was, you know, I was doing the same thing with 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 animals with my dad growing up.
1: Right, right. I would yeah. like Eric to circle back around um, because this is during during somewhere during this time frame, uh, the SDV story. And if you could tell us when, when was that <laughs> that you got put on the SDV team?
2: So uh, it was actually after right after that uh, deployment, um, I I ended up taking over the platoon that uh, that Murph. And the Lone Survivor guys. So it was Alpha Platoon from S T V One. And uh that platoon on the previous rotation had had gone through the incredible firefight. Um that, you know, the majority of that platoon lost their lives in. Mm-hmm. So I I volunteered to go to STV one. I went out, so STV one stands for Seal Delivery Vehicle Team One. It's based out of Hawaii. And uh I went out to Hawaii and uh, me and this, this guy named Paul Robinson, who is a chief that had put me through BUDS. Um, we are now the, the SEAL platoon chief and the SEAL platoon officer in charge. And uh, it, it was an incredible experience. And I, you know, it's, it's one of the better um, things that I was allowed to do in the Navy. But to pick up a platoon that has had the vast majority of the leadership uh, killed, and then rebuild what a professional culture is within the platoon, what's going to be acceptable, not acceptable. We're going to work hard, play hard. Um, you know, we're, we're only going to do shots and crying every beer for so long. And it's time to just get you back up and get on the pony. And we got to, we got to build a capability here. Um, so that, that was a leadership challenge that that I embraced and that, um, I've, I got a lot from and I, I hope that I was able to lead those guys through that transition. Um, so we ended up, uh, you know, and a lot of guys shunned going to SDVs Mm -hmm. and then SDVs kind of started to turn a bit of a corner with some technology advancements to where they were being used. And then we ended up, you know, being asked to do something on behalf of the nation that is, you know, it was, it was an honor to be a part of, and it just needs to stay it is one of those things that it just doesn't need the light of day.
1: Sounds spicy. Um,
2: Nope. I'm not going Sounds there. spicy. I know. <laughs> no, I, nah, uh-uh, not at all. And, um, so, you know, um, it just, it, uh, we, we had to work super hard and it was, um, the big mama ocean doesn't like you, even if you're training much less going to do an uncontrolled, um, you're on your own, you know, combat dive somewhere on planet earth. So it's, it's an easy environment to get killed in. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a lot easier. I, you know, I, after doing some, uh, some Hey Ho ops, um, and some real ones, um, I, I often compared what's more dangerous, you know, uh, an SDV combat dive or a hey-ho combat jump. And, um, you know, I think it's the STV dive. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, I mean, even if you're not even doing a combat dive, like just maintaining your own survivability in a complex dive rig mm-hmm. at 130 feet. I mean, you can mess that up just by the slightest. And before you like, you're not even going to get a heads up. You're, it's just a, you're hoping that your buddy next to you sees you're passed out and can correct your O2 and, and partial pressure. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely unforgiving environment. There's not very many guys that do it um, in the SEAL teams and they're extremely hard men. Uh, you think a 10 hour car ride. Is a is a bit of a pain in the butt. Um, try ten hours underwater submersed at fifty can feet you, Can 30, you describe
1: 30, a little bit of what yeah. the S D V mission is, like the, the unclassified version Yeah, what is an S D V and
0: yeah.
2: So it's it's a uh it's a small underwater Jeep that's actually a sub it's a submarine. Uh, it's filled with water. You got a couple guys in the front that one guy's driving it, one guy's navigating it. Um And, and then you either have some equipment in the back end of it or some dudes in the back end of it. And you're going to either deliver the equipment or deliver the guys. And you dive a lot to make sure that you can end up at the right place at the right time with the right delivery package. Um, It's, and it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it is extremely hard physically. Um, especially when you are in, like you know, cold water. I mean, you're submerged the entire time. So, and you're, you know, I mean, you're in water. Typically, you've got like a great big monstrous complex navy dive rig, uh, a semi closed Mark 16 on your back. You'll have a dragger, completely closed, um, bubbleless rig on your front. You'll have a a manifold. Kind of right next to you that you can breathe off of. That's more just like a, a scuba tank. You know, only you're breathing off the air that the is is in an air tank in the SDV. So with all of that, all those options, you can kind of like uh, manage your signature in the water as you get closer and closer to wherever you're trying to end up without people knowing you're there. Um, so think about it as. You can leave a submarine or a place on land. You can go for, you know, X number of miles, just breathe in bubbles like a scuba diver. And then you can throw on a different rig and then you can go another, you know, 15, 20 miles on a rig that only occasionally lets out a bubble. And then when you're in the last couple miles of being close to wherever you're gonna be, you can transition to something that leaves no trace and you can go do whatever you want so it's an extremely um versatile capability and it gives you a lot of access around the planet to really push the point in of government policy mm-hmm. um it's great and you know i mean the guys that do it my hat's off to them um I, I did it for a short stint um it teed up some of the hardest problems i ever had to solve as a as a critical thinker and as a SEAL officer and, and I have nothing but respect for the guys that are doing it.
0: But what? Oh, I was going to say, but spending that long in the water in a stationary position, you guys have seat heaters and like, you know, <laughs> the, the heat coming off, right. I mean, you guys are comfortable on that, on that three hour <laughs> to eight hour voyage, correct?
2: So, um, <laughs> when we were training up in uh, the Puget sound off of Seattle, uh, just, training dive we wanted to just see how far we could take the SDV it's called an exhaustion dive it's it totally sucks um, We took off from a small little uh, submarine base up there basically went around uh, the point of one island and then started working our way up the San Juan Islands um, and we went all the way up this complex navigation problem between the bathymetry and the bottom and where you are and what you understand on a map. And every so often you can get a GPS update that tells the boat where it is. And you're in 39 degree water that entire time. You, even in with today's wetsuits is, or in a dry suit or a, or a wet dry suit, which whatever you're running with, there's no way to not get cold in right. 10 hours or 39 degree water. And so, we go all the way up to the northern end of, of Woodby island, we find this little thing we're looking for. And then we turn all turn and come all the way back down. So 50 plus miles, almost um, as far as is that that boat can go. And uh, we, you know, we, we come back to the to kind of the boat ramp. And there's, you know, they back down a trailer, and we run the SDV up on it, and they pull it out. And everybody's excited, we're going to go jump in a in a boat and head on over across Puget Sound and then go to Seattle and start drinking martinis. It's Friday night. Right. And, uh, at that point in time, as the dive had been going on, I, I'd, I'd realized that I was losing less and less, uh, feeling in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, It started kind of in the hands and then it kind of went to like the teeth and the face and the chattering. And then it started, it continued progressing the feet and then up the legs. And by the time we got the STV on the trailer, I couldn't feel anything from my chest down. Nothing, and uh, so guys, like, all right, come on, let's go. It's Friday night. Let's go start hitting in Seattle, and and I was like, uh, I, I'm like, guys, like, you gotta help me out of this. I'm like, I can't, I can't get out of the STV. I can't move. I couldn't move. I was numb from the chest down. Yeah, and it, it started this entire like massive rewarming drill with our with our quorum with our medics and and my pilot was a little bit better because he had had the ability to like push against the water flow and and actually when you're kind of running those rudders and stuff it, it requires some physical activity but there's no seat heater yeah. <laughs> there's no. Yeah. i mean it's yeah it's it is it literally is one of the worst things you can yeah i mean, I mean you because, as a as a hard hat diver you know this. yeah with,
0: well with no physical exertion you're not doing anything to, to heat that water between just the shoes and you and and the other yeah. thing is is that you know when they pull you out and you're hypothermic like that I, I mean they have to rule out decompression sickness too because you know numbness and all that stuff is one of the primary things it's like okay is it just hypothermia yeah. or does he you know did he bend? you know does he have the bends and we don't know. Yeah,
2: is an AG is an arterial yeah. gas embolism? Yeah. Like, you know what's going on? Yeah, I mean it's, yeah it's, uh, it it's rough. It sounds um, miserable.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: it really no, is. it's horribly miserable. Um, and uh, yeah, you know it's. But it's also uh, it, like it's, the
1: coolest thing. The seals, like in my opinion, it's like something super cool that the seals do. I mean, like that's a real frogman mission right there.
2: Oh it's it's a terrible frogman it's it's a terribly <laughs> cool frogman mission um yeah you know, I mean it's it's super high risk it's super dangerous mm-hmm. uh just in training and uh but you know I I I really like the idea that you can put some of those things on a submarine and it can disappear from planet earth mm-hmm. you can't find it it can take off whatever call it the east coast of the United States And it won't pop up for 20, 30 days. Mm -hmm. And then you can take something small like that and you can ram it right where you want it. And there's nothing anybody can do about
1: it. That's amazing. That's pretty baller. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's pretty much like, that's a bold testament to the U.S. government saying, "Ah, we're just going to do what we need to do. And you just don't get a vote. (laughs) It's great.
1: Uh, What was it? This, uh, I'm kind of curious about, when the idea that that you wanted to go in and assess at Dam Neck or, or begin that process, I mean, what was it, you know, going hypothermic in the SDV? You decided oh, maybe it's time, maybe it's time for a new job for me.
2: No. Um, you know, I, I've always had a terrible pull to come back to uh, the mountains and my rivers and things like that, that i left as a childhood. So um, I, I, I had intended to get out of the Navy um. Uh, probably at about like year six. So somewhere around the 2005, 2006 time frame. But I told my wife, I, you know, I was married at the time. I had, I had a kid. Um, I just told her, I was like, look, I'm like, I, I can't leave the SEAL teams here with questions. I can't leave with skeletons in the closet. And I refuse to do that. And so I just, you know, I was like, Hey, I'm like, I have to at least go screen to see if if what they need there is what I have. And, you know, like you absolutely put your professional reputation at risk on that. It's, you know, it's seal selecting SEALs for another higher um, organization. And anytime you do that within a highly competitive community, like there's going to be some broken China. Mm-hmm. but I had, to, I had to see. Um, so, uh, she was, you know, my wife's terribly supportive, um, you know, love her to death. And she was like, okay, if, if that's what it will take for you to either continue on or for you to leave clean, she's like, then do it. So, you know, I went to selection. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I was, I was honored just to be allowed to for an invite to come select. So I went, you know, kind of through their selection process to see if I had the right attributes, both as an officer and, and to learn a lot more of a refined skill set that's needed to, to operate at a higher level, um, within those, within that team. So, um, went to selection in 2008 and, uh, you know, it's, it's an honest selection and they start with extremely accomplished people and they end up with a smaller group of extremely accomplished people. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's an honor to be a part of it and you do everything you can day in, day out, not to, to maximize what's asked of them and to make sure that it's a reputable place.
1: How were uh, things different from dev group from the other SEAL teams? I mean, when you, again, I guess the same question that I asked you earlier, what's it like showing up in that team room as the new guy?
2: Mm. Yeah, it's just, um, you're confident in who you are and you're confident in your abilities and there are people that are much more confident and much more proficient in every ability that you think you have. <laughs> yeah.
0: what, what you know, place? I mean, like,
2: it, like it go, it's basically the difference between um, kind of like a really advanced high school football team and the NFL. It, it just, you know, like when you have guys that, that have been allowed to work together and dedicate themselves on problem sets for decades at right. a time, the proficiency, the camaraderie, the teamwork, the um, what's possible is just at a different level.
0: After having like you know done combat tours, what was Green Team like for you? Was it uh, was it challenging? Was it just refining what skills you felt you already had? Was it a whole new skill set?
2: No, they what what they do is they they. They test your ability to learn and they do it by putting the tools that you should, you already have, you know, as a seal under duress and they do it in your ability to do those things um, under duress at a very high, high pressure situations. And then at the drop of a hat, They're going to tell you, okay, these things have been ingrained in you for the last four to six years. Right now, I'm going to tell you to do it differently by this, this, and this. Okay, do you understand what I'm asking you? Yes, I understand what you're asking me. Okay, go to that door and do it right now. And if you can go to that door and do it right now and adapt between where you're standing and that door, off of six years of what you've already ingrained in your head and adapt that fast and perform. They're testing your ability to learn and adapt and how quick you can do it. And then once you've shown that you can do that under duress and under stress, then they start to layer in more advanced tools into the quiver to make you a more lethal hunter. And then when you start to combine that into teams and elements, that's when you start to be ready to do, you know, the higher end of what the nation's going to
1: ask. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And and so what was that like then? Now you're you are the JSOC guy getting deployed overseas. You you are you know the the big leagues, the guys you saw hunting HVTs earlier in your career, and now you are that guy.
2: Um, you know, you, you maximize cause, cause now, now you understand that they're giving you the tools to make you extraordinarily effective, but they've screened you for your intellect and your ability to learn and adapt. And that's where this gets to be. Okay. Am I on the right line of targeting? am I really getting after remember how I was talking about the Afghanis would be like, Hey, we're going to show you this, but really they, what you were seeing wasn't important to them Mm -hmm. and they were actually doing something else here Mm -hmm. that that's what was really important to them. So when you start to get all of the collection tools and all that, and you've got your whole cadre of let's go get this done dudes behind you, it's really like, okay, am I sick in these pit bulls on the right problem or not? Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where you're like, now you've entered the chess game that's highly, highly, highly um, vulnerable, strategic, and volatile. And, and you can get it totally right, and you can hit them right where it hurts. And you're like, absolutely, gotcha. And then they're like, oh, wait, I'm going to throw up all these false pictures and claim pregnant women and school kids that just got thumped by, you know, American forces. Mm -hmm. And you totally lost it Mm because that was like that was their fallback. And they wanted that all the time. Right. Even though we won on like the night of we won the next day at noon, they were out ahead of us. Right. And you're like, God damn. And, And then, you know. Then you're dealing with some army 04 from conventional unit, whatever, coming to run an investigation on you. And you're like, God damn it, dude. You're like, you don't even understand what the what the hell we're you don't even understand what the checkers game was. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're here to investigate me? Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I will say that like guys are a thousand percent ethical at the way that they always applied the roes the rules of engagement and the policy i never saw any of the i never saw anything that that wasn't in defense of their own lives or their own teammate as we were going after good solid righteous targets
0: yeah,
1: you mean like um, some, some no, of the ma- some of the mayhem that's been reported in the press over? Yeah, the years. saying you you have you, you didn't have the disciplinary issues in, in your troop.
2: No, not at all. And I, I saw like there was nothing but professionalism, and uh, you know, I mean, a hardcore commitment to upholding and getting after the job, and 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 you know, I think all of that stuff is is either people with a gripe or maybe like these like 1% offshoot gray area things that maybe somebody heard of, heard of, heard, or it's just, it's not there. It's not what the, it's not what the place is about. It's not what the guys stand for. It's not what they dedicate their lives for. It's not what they're willing to die for. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it, um, I, you know, had I seen it, ought to grab my troop chief or my squadron match chief right then and said, sort this out
1: right. I have but seen, it's just not there. I, I have seen Eric, though, that you have been pretty outspoken and vocal about some of the you know cultural issues that have come up in in the press in recent years. um some of the comments you made, you know about the whole Eddie Gallagher situation.
2: yeah, um no, i I just, you know. The seal community is a special place and I've got, I'm, I was humbled to be a part of it. I'm humbled to be an alumni of it. Um, And you don't want the perception and the public audience to be dominated by people that are, well, I'll just put it bluntly when, you either ride for the brand right yeah. or you're riding the, or you're riding the brand and folks that are either riding the brand or that are out there grinding a max that may or may not be justified i don't think that they should be painting the perception of what's going on within a writ large community mm-hmm. of professionals
0: mm-hmm.
2: that's my personal stance um, And I, I have no problem going, going toe-to-toe with anybody that wants to see it differently.
0: Well, and the challenge, I think, in any kind of community like that is it doesn't matter. You can have 5,000 operators and former operators, but if one person with that brand, you know, it, it, it kind of is controversial, then then, yeah. then it, it, it it's the whole brand. Because that's what people see. That's what the yep. public sees, and right. you don't hear from you know the four thousand nine hundred ninety nine people that that aren't out there. You're only hearing from one or two. One. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So you know, I mean, um, I'm an ABC News contributor. I help them with the content on to make sure that their their content is accurate, and on occasion. I will use that as a platform to be a, be a lily pad for a broader voice. Um, just recently I wrote uh, like a, an 800 word thing on uh, the passing of, of Dick Marcinko. Mm-hmm. And hey, Dick Marcinko is <laughs> that guy, he, within the CEO community, we either love him or you hate him, uh, right? I mean, he, he's just a, he was a super large personality. Mm-hmm. And he was extraordinarily controversial and, you know, however, whatever the inner dealings were that landed him in, you know, the, the federal penitentiary um, it's, it's, it's probably debatable and a bit of a gray zone. Right. But at the end of the day, like that guy was so bold that he took an opportunity that he saw to, to stand up a Navy tier one unit, to be ready to do counterterrorism operations globally and, you know, this is urban legend, and I, and I, I can't either confirm it, and I don't even have the ability, I don't know who would, but the urban legend is that he got a memo approved for a small unit, called like a platoon-sized unit, to do CT operations in the Navy. And he went and broke back into the Joint Staff's office at night, and broke into the safe and changed it to a team. you want to talk about some balls, but you also want to talk about some foresight and yet you want to talk about the personal integrity to like make it happen. Right. That's a, that's a personality that is a maverick. And, you know, I alluded to Jim Mattis writing a book on, you know, calls on chaos. And in his book, he talks about the strength of mavericks in organizations and how they have to be allowed to be given rope. And they also have to be protected.
0: Right. Because
2: they take organizations in places that are better for the organization, even though the organization doesn't want it. Right. I saw Dick Marcinko as that type of personality. So I just recently wrote that into ABC News because I didn't want the dialogue from the broader community to be centered about negativity about Dick. I think that guy was visionary and he had some balls.
0: Well, and,
2: you know, like, like or love it. That's what the SEAL teams need from time to time. Right.
0: And it's easy. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter if it's in the military or in the realm of business or anything else like that. Like it is easy to pot take pot shots at a person who has created something or done something. They're probably maybe they're not a perfect human being, but the, the same things that you don't like about them are the things that enable them, those types of character characteristics are things that enabled them to accomplish the things that they did in the first place, which have moved us forward in one way or another in one realm or another?
2: Yeah, call it 12 September. We needed that
0: right
1: yeah
2: mm-hmm. absolutely
1: so from uh, from that time frame of running operations in Afghanistan, are there any particular missions that kind of like stand out in your mind just like man, that one was particularly hairy or, or stressful or difficult to pull off? Um
2: yeah. Uh you know, I was leading a four man recce. Um we ended up uh getting to the right spot and we ended up not getting compromised for two days and we were watching about sixty Taliban fighters and then we ended up getting compromised by kids um and then being surrounded by a number of other Taliban from the other Valley over and getting us out that night. Uh, that was, uh, you know, like kind of a puke in your mouth. You're going to get, you're, you're dead by sunrise for sure scenario. Um, but, uh, you know, I would say that, that probably the better one that really sticks out in my mind is, um, We've been trying to catch a guy for a for a bit. He was pretty smart. He was pretty slippery. Couldn't get a hold of him. Um, and then randomly, you know, one day, uh, a convoy got attacked right outside of base, and we started trying to assist with it. And we started pushing assets to it, and then the reactionary force that came out of the nearest base, they also got IED, and so. I can't recall if it was like 10 or 16 Americans that died that day in those IED attacks. And that dude that we've been trying to catch for a couple months, he was there and we figured it out. And as soon as we got him on camera, we never let him go. And that guy went up over a couple of valleys with him and his jamooks and they went into this village and all the villages were clapping and all this. And, and, uh, you know those guys went up and basically went to sleep in this in this compound at the top of this valley. Meanwhile, we're just topping off our mags, put some frags <laughs> in our vests, and we're like, "Yep, we got you, asshole!" Um, and uh, so we rolled up that valley that night, and we settled the score. Um, and uh, and they they did not come out on top. Nor did the village that decided to come out against us as well after we'd slipped in there. Um, and, you know, so we're we're flying out right at sunrise. Um, but that one to, you know, to have the tools that the nation has given you to be able to collect the intelligence and then be able to right now send a message like that's not going to be tolerated. And you spill American blood like we're going to come make this right. Uh, that That's one of those that stands out is. Uh, that's that's what makes it worth the years of putting up with, you know, logs on your head and boats on your head and all the all of the trouble and sacrifice you go through. Um, it's it it's needed, and so that that was one of those nights.
0: I, I think it's important to say for for people who aren't so familiar with like the operating environment that, like when you say the village. Like you don't mean like I know what you mean not like a my lie like you know oh this village no, but what hap- but what happens is in a lot of these whether it's in Iraq like in Sadr City or in a lot of these villages that are that are heavy like Taliban operating areas in Afghanistan if you if you guys can imagine like a SWAT team in America you know on on some you know bad guy's house and then all of a sudden all the neighbors start coming out and shooting at that SWAT team that's sort of what happens in these types of environments so they these people they could just sleep through the night and leave you alone and you roll up on your primary target take yeah. them down and you're gone but they decide to get involved they decide they're gonna like try to bring the hate and it doesn't generally work out for them that well
2: no and I a thousand percent and I appreciate you highlighting that and that's exactly what I mean with that statement yeah. I've no, no. And I would just say, like, I'd reiterate it again. I've never, ever been a part of nor seen anything that wasn't a clear, lawful, lawful um, application of the rules of self-defense in, you know, basically, it's exactly your point there, Jack. We go in after these guys that have killed Americans and the people that are sympathetic to them, they come out with guns at night to, to hammer us because we're we're kind of going after the guys that they that they admire and we defend ourselves
0: right the call to prayer starts going at three o'clock in the morning calling everybody to arms and yeah
1: right i I wanted to ask you about sort of maybe the next stage in your career in aqap uh yemen and you had this story about um christmas uh what this was about 2009 i was wondering if you could kind of start like lead us into that story and tell us what happened
2: okay so couple of wars are on. So I'm pretty thick and heavy. You go, you know, you fight in Afghanistan for four months, you come back home for a little bit, you train for four months, then you deploy to other parts of the world, uh, for four months, you come back, you train for a little bit, and then you go back to Afghanistan. So at the end of the day, you're spending about somewhere between 270, 300 days gone from your, your house out of the year. Uh, you kind of start doing that year after year after year Um, in that particular instance um, AQAP was starting to become a viable threat Um, they were starting to uh, really get some sophisticated ways to bring down uh, international jets with some of the ways they were going about making explosives and uh, it was really starting to become like I said a viable threat. so yeah. the Obama administration was like, okay, we need to put some ca- some counterterrorism op- efforts here into Yemen, um, and so we were kind of doing that on the back burner while the main efforts were Iraq and Afghanistan. But every every other four months, you weren't either there; you were you were centered on 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 Yemen and Somalia uh, with AQAP and AQ. East Africa or Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or Al-Qaeda in East Africa. Um, and so right, right about Christmas of 2009-2010 uh, time frame, um, we, were, we were hunting um, primarily a guy named Anwar Alaki, who ironically was an American citizen, uh, right at 9-11 had come out against the the Muslim actions, but then swung to the other side of the spectrum over time and was now in Yemen, um, doing his best to bring about attacks to the international community that I define as, you know, Europe and the United States. Um, so we're kind of hunting them down and, uh, as you start doing this, you you kind of start seeing the the, the Al Qaeda fingerprint. You start seeing the training camps. You start seeing the recruitment. You start seeing increased threat levels. You start hearing the the international chatter about you know attacks pending this here 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 here, and um, so uh, out of out of one of those training camps, um, some suicide bombers came at the American embassy, and uh, we we did everything we could to have the locals handle it but at the end of the day um we weren't able to get them where they needed to be whether it was the yemeni military the yemeni police uh or other and so now it ends up being a an emergency um action committee more or less um to the white house level with a couple key leaders along the chain of command you know Going up, uh, um, yeah, and you know, into the the principals committee, which is you know the the head of the secretary of state, the or, uh, the head of the agency, the you know the the lead military guy, which is sent commander at the time, which is uh, Dave Petraeus. And uh, at the end of the day, it, we come down to like, hey, like either we take care of this problem now with uh, a couple of Harriers off of uh, off of an amphib so some marine jets with some 500 pound bombs um, or we try to defend ourselves at the gates of the embassy tomorrow morning I don't know if we're going to be successful against suicide multiple suicide bombers coming into the embassy. So um, at the end of the day they're you know in you know as as a first time as a as a mirror lieutenant commander in the navy talking into the principals community on an an emergency action um, decision brief and articulating in three minutes or less the need to not only take care of the suicide bombers but hey we watch we've been watching this training camp of 100 plus terrorists and this is where these guys came from and if you if we don't take care of this problem and this problem This other one is just going to continue to, to, to launch more people at us over time. Um, so anyway, decision came down, um, even with all the lawyers involved to, uh, to take them both. And so, okay, let's, let's, let's take care of both of these problems at the same time. So. We did through a combination of, of uh, ship launched munitions and, and jets and, and bombs. And uh, so we took, took care of the suicide bombers that were gonna come in on the embassy and we also took care of this training camp. Um, and uh, so we're like, okay, but what that did was that, that decimated a, a rank of AQAP. So now the senior leaders in AQAP that we'd been really trying to get after they had to start coming up on the net to reorganize, mm-hmm. so that made them more targetable. So then another target starts to develop, and sure enough, it's it's a bunch of guys that are starting to congregate in the mountains and starting to kind of come together, and then we start to see some of the some of the some of the high value um, signature pieces, you know, um, guys dressed in white getting shown deference. Um, leadings like sermons planning meetings type things and uh so you know we we, we key up another strike um for a decision pretty much at the presidential level and uh this is christmas eve um and the you know the approval comes like hey like do it so we we you know, we, we also kind of take care of that problem, start taking more chess pieces off the chessboard. And uh, we were like, hey, we're good, you know, team America, we're bringing it, steel on target, right? Um, taking care of threats to the international community. Go to bed that night, wake up in the morning and there's reports about this this kid on a jet, on a passenger jet over Detroit that's trying to light his underwear on fire or explode his underwear. Mm -hmm. And instead of exploding his underwear, they just light him on fire and he burns like, you know, horribly around the crotch area. Good for him. Um, And uh, it's like, man, like, where did that come from? You know, was that Al Qaeda in East Africa? Was that, Al-Qaeda out Pakistan was that Al-Qaeda in Yemen? Like, where did that come from? Cause now this is the level that you're involved in. And, uh, turns out that one of the primary guys we were after, um, had designed that entire explosive package for that kid to wear. And then they knew that the scrutiny coming out of Yemen was going to be fairly severe. So they sent him down into Africa, and then he came out of um, northern Africa, Tunisia, on a flight to Detroit. And the only thing that saved the people on that plane and the people in that plane's flight path that would have been killed in their house on Christmas morning is this 747 plows into the into the outskirts of Detroit was that he had had the underwear on for three days and he sweated just enough to change the chemical composition for it to go lower instead of higher. So it lit him on fire instead of exploded. And he had a seat right over the wing where all the fuel was.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And we had no idea about it.
0: Which is kind of scary because like he had been on the radar of like british intelligence like he he right. wasn't somebody who hadn't been under watch before uh, he didn't have a criminal past but but people were aware of him
2: yeah so that taken in collective i i it was the writing was on the wall
1: mm-hmm. but but they didn't know this was this was a plot you know you guys it was like purely coincidental no. that you you nuked these guys from orbit, not knowing a plot was being hatched.
2: A thousand percent. Yeah, the yeah. entire intelligence community, whether it's Brit, American, you know, other five eye, anybody, nobody had any idea about right. it right. So to me, the writing was on the wall. Hey, professional people either dedicate themselves as hard as the enemy is or we lose. And so, you know, I, I was I was kind of on a trajectory to get out of the Navy. Um, I felt like I'd done more than my part, and I need I wanted to get home around my my family and the things that I had, you know, kind of cherished cherished. And uh, but I was like, no way. Mm-mm. I'm like, if if smart people that understand this problem set don't don't stay here and commit themselves to it, like we lose. Mm-hmm. And so I I came back home. I I kind of laid it out to my wife the timeline as far as our kids' ages and you know, Navy life and da da da. da, da. But I was like, we're in this. And, you know, to her credit, like as soon as she kind of understood it, she was like, Yeah, we're in this let's
1: say you told me so that... i'm sorry go ahead
2: no uh, over I, you.
1: I was just going to say that during this time frame 2011 2016 you were telling me earlier that what you were seeing was that you, things were developing on the ground and and you guys were developing things on the ground to the point that it was outpacing policy that it got to that point where like you need you need the White House or you need policymakers to actually make a a yes, no decision on this for us to move forward. Like the situation on the ground was developing faster than our government could react.
2: Yeah, I know. And that's a a great point. Um, That's exactly the way it was. Uh, You know, we would, we would end up uncovering something that was a viable threat was, could not be tolerated to not be either, uh, you know, either somebody that needed to be captured or somebody that needed their choice, you know, capture kill, but it would be their choice kind of on the end of however that went down. Um, And, you know, they would be uh, a person with no international linkages for citizenship. And they are absolutely a, extraordinarily viable threat to the international community and you're you're like hey we have to get this guy or or this this person whether it's a a man or a woman doesn't matter and they are traveling from point a to point b and we can get them right here in the middle and okay if we get our hands on them what's the ultimate disposition uh-huh. they have no citizenship. Maybe they had applied to be like a British citizen five years ago and the, and the UK said, no, nah, we're like, you're not going to be a citizen in our country. Um, and then, you know, it turns out that they're like, okay, well, let's just get them. And then depending on what they say during, you know, during, uh, you know, the questioning, Maybe they'll incriminate themselves enough that we can then hold them in, in a US criminal court. Because like Gitmo is no longer an option. I mean, you know, Gitmo came off the off the plate as an option in what, like 2003, really, is when the, the 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 pushback from the from the international community was so large and our own population that it just it wasn't an option. So yeah, I mean, you know, I saw I saw people that were not U.S. citizens, um, read the Miranda rights, and then given the same rights that you know Joe the plumber from Nebraska got, who paid taxes for twenty years, and then they were prosecuted under a U.S. criminal
1: right
2: process. And I saw U.S. citizens um, that mayor that were not given a trial by jury, but given a, a capture kill.
1: You're talking so, about al
2: Yeah, al specifically, specifically um, in that instance. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, it's so, you see American citizens that aren't given a due process and you see non-American citizens that are given a due process And that's when you start to realize that our our country at the time had not kept up on laws or legislation enough to keep pace with what we were dealing with. So, I mean, you know, we joked about it at the time, but the reality was we were like, hey, let's, we're going to drive policy by PowerPoint. We don't see any good solution here. We know that there is no solution for it, but we can't just stare at a fascinating problem and do nothing. So, we're going to table this and you know, the beltway is going to have to figure out how to, what to do about it, but we cannot pass up the opportunity because this is an extraordinarily viable threat to the international community. And that was our job to voice that. And then our job to follow through on it.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, this is 2010, 11, 12, 13, but this has been an issue since 2001. Like the whole what do we yeah. do? We don't. We don't have prisoner of war camps, like you know you didn't say in World War Two, right? Or whatever. What do we do with these non-traditional combatants um, in in a legal sense? Because we can't try them in a U.S. court. Because a lot of times there's n- we don't have like the evidentiary st- uh, evidentiary standards uh, met, and you know you give them all the rights of a U.S. citizen and all these other things. Um, you can't turn them over to certain like their own countries because their own countries will kill them. And our own policies say we can't give a, a, a detainee back to a country that will kill them. And it's like, well, what do we do with it? So that was, you know, starting out with Gitmo in 2001, 2002. Then we're now we're in 2010, 2011, and it's 2021, 2022. And I imagine that we still don't have answers for those questions.
2: No, we don't. And, I mean that that was a, a small problem that you know like we were dealing with. I would say the problem was only domesticized and got a lot larger. I mean, how many ISIS fighters are incarcerated um, in Syrian Democratic Forces penitentiaries that are being held in in Kurdistan? by a non-recognized government entity, the SDF, um, after the fall of ISIS.
1: Yeah, thousands.
2: Thousands. So you have thousands of guys being held in the prison with no due process. And the international community, I mean, like, you know, the French are paying the Kurds to watch over the ISIS guys that they don't want coming back to France. Same thing with the UK. Uh, I mean... Is this one of those scenarios where we took all of the pot dealers, uh, you know, in the in the war on drugs, and we put them all in prison, and then they got out, and then they had a PhD in how to run cocaine? Like, <laughs> right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this plays out. I just know that we've got thousands of former ISIS fighters incarcerated together, held by a non recognized, non government entity, with no no end state in sight, no reintegration back to society with, Hey, here's a vocation that you can, you can do this going to be productive. And I, I mean, what do you think those guys are going to do? I mean, they are going to radicalize harder in those places.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, we, we turned a blind eye to it. We stopped paying the bill. The door goes open.
1: Standby. by. Uh- I- Another uh, subject that I wanted to talk to you about is the what what we're calling now is like near-peer adversaries or great power competition. Is like some of the buzzwords that get thrown around for going back to nation-state versus nation-state type conflicts, um, you know, at a level of less than warfare, right? Open warfare, and I think there's some thinking. That I've read at least that special operations that has invested deeply in counterterrorism for the last twenty years, it's kind of their time to take a back seat now. And this is sort of a conventional military deterrence. I don't I hate to compare it to the Cold War, but it's it's kind of back to that sort of um conventional military deterrence and contingencies and preparations and international brinksmanship, etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, but you think and believe that. There is a role for JSOC and special operations community uh, in this, you know, current era that we find ourselves in.
2: You're totally right. Uh, when when it's state on state, I mean, the the way that the our system is designed is that the conventional forces are going to are they they are going to do the heavy lifting, the responsibility for the for the soft guys is to find those small things that the conventional forces can't do, or those small things that are exponential gains in situational awareness and intelligence. And it's probably pretty hard to get it done, but you gotta figure out a way to problem solve and then either get it done to help with the overall intelligence picture or to support the conventional forces. And, you know, brinksmanship, I think, is a perfect word for exactly what's going on right now between, you know, Russia, Ukraine and the U.S. slash NATO. And how this plays out, you know, I don't think I think if anybody told you that they knew how it was going to play out would be the first person I wouldn't listen to um, because there's so many variables in it. And I think, you know, really the only, you know. Putin is the antagonist. He's massed his forces, and whether or not he decides to tell him to um, get a buffer zone into Ukraine because he doesn't like what's happening with NATO expansion, or whether or not he tries to go for the whole pie, I, I think the only person that knows that is is Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you see the role of uh, the special operations community to be one of uh, largely intelligence-based and maybe, you know, small-scale, like, commando operations, like, even going back to this types of things like the Jedbergs did during World War Two.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would hope, and I, I'm not confirming this, and I, I don't really have any, any knowledge of it, um, but I would hope that there are... Jedberg-ish-like teams that are peppered throughout the Ukrainian populace that are helping to prepare and organize um, insurgency um, type forces to to go against the Russians. And I'm sure that there are probably, you know, like um, aid, advisement, intelligence, and equipment that are making their way into ukraine um as per the legislation that's been passed by our by our government so yeah. yeah absolutely you know i mean um countering uh russian aggression is right down our our wind cone as far as national interests and and i would hope that the sf guys are are right back into the JEBBERG days
1: well, it's interesting, of course, that uh, my friend Zach uh, wrote an article just this week that was published about uh, the CIA bringing to America mm-hmm. teams from the Ukraine, training them, and then sending them back um, to potentially act as stay-behind forces in case something ever did go hot over there. So at least what's what's in the press this week, it seems that some of that is happening, yeah.
2: No, get on them. Um, whoever started those programs at whatever point they did, um, like a lot of really good foresight. And I would highlight, personally, I don't think that you can you cannot overlook the fact that I think the buildup of Russian forces and their propensity to make such a bold new bold move right now is probably linked to the way that they watched us exit Afghanistan.
1: what do you think about our uh, relationship uh from a, a a geostrategic competition point of view with china especially with your background in jsoc also as an sdv guy i know you must have some opinions about that
2: you know i mean uh china They use all of the quivers in the, or sorry, all the arrows in the quiver Mm -hmm. um, and predatory economics, uh, predatory economics gains them access and placement, gains them the ability to influence, gains them the ability to to start setting up their own little lily pads for uh, military-ish expansion. Um, When China is dominant or owns any number of the choke points for sea transit across the globe, and they can start now dictating taxation and sea routes, mm-hmm. the economic picture of our globe changes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, for anybody that wants, is going to talk about China, if you haven't read the the 100-year um, marathon, like you have to read that uh, in yeah. order to Michael, understand uh, the Michael, Chinese Michael mindset.
1: Killsbury's book.
2: A- absolutely. Yeah. I, I think if you read that book, you'll understand the Chinese mindset, and you'll understand the the advantages that they have in a one leader communist system that has a hundred year vision over a cyclic four year system that that turns over across the spectrum every four years. Um, so yeah, they they absolutely have some advantages. Um, they are not above using the economic power that they can to expand their, their military influence and their military um, dominance, especially within their the, the near neighboring states, you know, in the South China Sea. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's as much as a military-backed uh, economic threat that as soon as we realize it for what it is, then we'll be able to start to... Um, whether we say counter it or grapple with it or shape it, whatever, we have to come to grips with it. And then we have to decide what policies need to be put in place beyond a four-year turnover rate to adequately be able to be on par with China right. in 30 in thirty to 40 years right. or maybe 20 years. But either way, it has to outlive our, our own four, four-year administrations and we have to understand what their goals are and their goals are, you know, that their, their goals are not to, to remain second best and their goals are not to mm. just feed our Walmarts. Right. Um, with, with no benefit to China other than a large bank account.
1: Right. Uh, all right, Eric, I'm going to roll into some fewer questions here. This one, you sort of already answered. Um, but did you ever meet Richard Marcinko or seal team six plank owners? If so, what were they like?
2: Yeah, Um, Brett. Sorry, met Dick a, a couple times. Um, ha- interacted with a number of the Plank owners. I um, respect them, and I always got a sense of men who were comfortable with themselves, and men who were comfortable breaking barriers. I think that was the culture that he seeded in them. And I think they really um, did that ingrained in them and they were good with it. And they had the utmost confidence. And I didn't, you know, a lot of them had ponytails and they looked like they belonged in hell's angels. That's fine. But they still had the drive and he planted in them to have vision and determination and the balls to follow it through and that's what you need in a lot of these uncomfortable situations. Yeah. So, yeah, no, hats off to those guys. I, I love what they started, and I have nothing but respect for them.
1: Uh, Jackson says, How different is the day-to-day life of a troop commander and dev group compared to assaulters? Uh, question applies to deployment and at Damnic. Uh Like, are you doing CQB as often as they are, or are you more focused on the big picture?
2: No, you... Um... So as a, as a Naval officer, but as, as a SEAL team officer, whether, and it's applicable to damn neck, especially, um, you're charting the course of the ship and the guys are fighting the ship. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So like, I mean, you're, you're not doing CQB. That's like, those guys are the world's best. I mean, I know guys left or right hand shooting, doesn't matter. Uh, Big circle, small circle, head, chest, left shoulder, right shoulder, doesn't matter. They'll hit it every time. In fact, three times in a row, if you want it in under three seconds, not a big deal. Yes, that's their job. And they're damn good at it. The guy that says, wait a minute, this is where the international threat is going to be. We need to be here in order to have this effect that's what the role of the officer is. And you better be damned. You better be as good as it, as those guys are about putting those three bullets where they need to be. And if you're not, then you're just not going to be there.
1: Uh, Jackson asks, what were your experiences like with CAG or FBI HRT? Did you cross train or deploy with them often? And was there a rivalry there?
2: Um, I-, I would say it was a, a a healthy rivalry with CAG that wasn't uh, vindictive, but a healthy rivalry. And it's good. It's good for the, the overall organization and for the needs of the nation. You need to have two different cultures looking at similar problems from different perspectives and maximize what they would each uh, use to go at it. So, hey, rivalry, absolutely. We're all very you know, type A driven motivated um, people that want to come out on top. So um, mutual respect. Yes. Rivalry. Yes. Uh, For the betterment of the nation. Yes. Broad HRT. um, You know, there were a lot of instances there that I talked about, you know, like uh, bringing in folks that need to be, you know, detained so that they were no longer a threat to the international community. We would do that by extending the long arm of the law. That's the FBI. So we would do that by facilitating the FBI to arrest people in countries where they had warrants for these folks, and we would we would go into really scary places and to be able to facilitate an FBI warrant and an arrest, and then they would bring them back for an incarceration. So we would work with them, we'd bring them, um, you know, whether it's army or FBI, when you start to get to those higher levels, everybody's as committed as you are. You just need to work through who has what authorities, right. who has what ideas, who has what tools to get it done in the, the best manner possible. And you got to like, check your ego and see who has what and then make the The end state the ultimate goal and then go for it and you know i mean that's how that's that's how you're able to over time whittle down these complex threats
1: uh how rare are mustang officers in dev group
2: pretty rare what so- <laughs> is that? The, is that the same? Is that the same Jackson that's asking? Yeah, yeah Jackson's yeah.
0: asking Tony. He, like, Dude, like I, I'm, gonna
2: look, I'm gonna I'm gonna. I want that email. I guarantee you, I can find out who that guy is. And,
0: and Jackson, <laughs> thank you very much for all these donations. We really appreciate.
1: Which, it, uh, it <laughs> <sweet>. <laughs> which which side appealed to you more, assault or Recce
2: I like to break things.
1: <laughs> assault. <laughs> Uh, all yep. right, he, here, here's one. He, he says he has a spicy question but is asking for your thoughts on some of the more public members of the unit, former members like Bissonette and O'Neill.
2: Uh, You know, you ride for the brand or you're riding the brand. Um, I, I would hope the guys can ride for the brand um, for the entirety of it. I don't know if they... I don't know if they can look in the mirror and answer that question as they've been riding for the brand or not.
1: Uh, What qualities make for the best troop commanders?
2: Humility. Competence. And integrity.
0: I... And I think you addressed this earlier, and it's funny because what you said is very similar to what a couple of the other uh, officers have said. And it's like, my job is to support the guys. Those guys go out and do the job. Like, like if if I do my job right, they're going to make me look good. Like, I don't have to make me look good through them. They're going to show up no. and work.
2: Ye- and if if uh, if the if the look good factor is what's uh, motivating somebody, I would say that the screening process failed. I mean, it's it's not about looking good. It's about uh, it's about having a healthy relationship and understanding what you're trying to get done and what they need in order to get done and what you need in order in, in order what you need to provide in order to get it done. And that's that's a tug of war, right, because. I mean, you know, if the only way to get to a place on planet earth involves a space shuttle. Well, shit, like we're never going to get there guys. So, you know, you gotta, you you gotta be able to, to work your way through the problem on, okay, how are we going to get there? How are we going to have enough understanding of it? And then do we have the right assets to be able to not only defend ourselves, but to know that what we're getting into is what we can handle. Right. Um, and, 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 and that's where, you know, you're pulling everything that they need to be successful and by their success is kind of what you're alluding to as the look good factor. But at the end of the day, if the goal isn't, um, things that matter, things that matter to the safety of the international community, then I'm going to start to question who's you know, what are your reasons for being here?
0: Right. Is that the sun or your spotlight?
2: Uh, yeah. Tapa, <laughs> right.
1: thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jackson says How challenging was the CQB block of Green Team? Is it as nightmarish as everyone makes it out to be? And what did you do to prep for it?
2: Uh, yeah, no, it's a nightmare. Um, but uh, what do you do to prepare for it? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really, it, it comes down to self-confidence, your ability to think your way through a high stress situation, your ability to manage your physiological responses and continue to apply the rules of reasoning that they're asking you to apply. Um, if you can do that, and you can follow the words of Jimmy Duke, go slow. And they'll tell you when they want you to speed up and keep your mouth shut. They'll tell you when they want to hear your opinion and you'll be just fine.
0: Uh, real quick. Tafa gave a donation, Michelle, uh or actually, I don't know. Uh, this person, Tafa, uh, also had a question uh, after that. What does he think about the show SEAL Team? And what did he think about Mark Owens and O'Neill's books? I don't
2: know if Tafa's. Uh... You know, I stopped reading, I stopped reading books about um, SEAL stuff probably in maybe like 2010. Um, So I, I don't know, and I've never watched an episode of SEAL Team
0: I know it's written by seals though I'm pretty sure I've never seen it but I,
2: i'm 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 sure it is and i I don't know who the technical advisors are. I could probably write some names on a piece of paper and hold it up on the camera and I bet you I'd probably be within seventy five percent of who the technical advisors are and I just kind of fall back to you know, are you writing for the brand or are you writing it um, and then. Uh, as far as the books, um, I didn't know that Rob had come out with a book. Um, and as far as, uh, the, the, you know, the no easy day to die, I think is what, uh, the, the one is there from Bis. um, shouldn't have done it. And, you know, kind of saying that, Hey, I'm going to take the proceeds from this book and I get I'm going to give it back to the community is not what the community is about um it didn't need to be it didn't need to be put out there uh, especially about the uh the raid into abbottabad
1: andrew asks it strikes me that seals and stvs when in a sub would find themselves in a very alien environment stuck in a sub being told not to touch anything
2: It's true. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I, the only thing I asked for on the sub was, uh, I, I asked them to weld a pull-up bar kind of in the back by the nuclear reactor, because if we were going to go underwater for 30 to 60 days, we're never going to come up this to have any air at all. Um, we're going to have some really angry motherfuckers on our hands and we need a pull-up bar, we need. We're going to need like probably an erg, and we're going to need some dumbbells that go up to at least 100 pounds, because or else like we're going to just start bending sub dudes in well,
0: half. You guys are going to need some good bronzers too, though, right? Because like sub dudes are all pasty.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That that's an interesting community right there. It,
0: it really is. Um, it's a fascinating community. Oh,
2: it's a tough it's, job. That's a tough job, and you know those guys do some massive strategic lifting in the intelligence world that never sees the light of day. And I'm super grateful that it doesn't. And uh, I mean, those guys go underwater for like 90 days to six months at a time. I mean, they are, I mean, they are one third of the nuclear triad for the strategic defense of the U S and when I say nuclear triad, that means you got bombers that can deliver bombs. You got missile silos from, you know, somewhere in the U.S. that might rhyme with, you know, the Midwest somewhere and on some, you know, plane that can launch uh, a nuclear capable missile at a moment's notice. And then you have submarines that are like 300 feet of depth off. You have no idea where they are on planet Earth and they can launch at any point in time and deliver a, a nuclear capable missile, whether it be on North Korea or Russia or wherever it needs to be, Tehran. Um, so that's one of the three. And those guys sit there underwater for months on end to, to hold that one third of the nuclear triad. So
0: in, in a tiny, oof. I mean, they have to the hot rack. So like they share the same bed, like ah. depending on what shift they're on. Uh, but the chow is good. The chow is amazing on a sub. All
2: right. So, All right. Uh, yeah, when I, when I was on, on a sub uh, and my time was limited, my my bed was from my elbow to my second knuckle right there on my middle finger. That's as high as my bed is. I'm 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 a I'm five nine. I'm 175 pounds. I'm not a big dude, especially in the SEAL teams. Um, I had to I had to pull myself out of my bed, my rack, and roll over and then slide back into it because my shoulders were too wide to fit in that space right there. I was lucky to have a bed. That I didn't have to share with another dude that was going to come in there as soon as I got out of it, or I had to wake up every four hours. Yeah, it's shitty on a sub, and the only way that they can uh, alleviate that is by cooking them really good food. Yeah, and they do their they do their best. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Isaac has a question here. He says, "I saw the ABC article of the seals asking for help because since o- the OBL raid, seals have become a brand." What's the state of the community now? Okay, so I guess he's talking about something you wrote.
2: I don't know. Um, Maybe it was kind of something to do with, you know, the Eddie Gallagher trials or things like that. Um, No, I mean, this, you know, you alluded to it before. You kind of have one free radical, and they're painting the picture for, you know, 1500 other people that are quietly training and preparing themselves day after, day after day, after day, after day, after day to be ready when needed. And dude, there is a, there is a, there is a, a core of people that are ready to sacrifice their lives, dedicate their entire professional um, career to devotion and to be, as good as they can be, so that they can protect the guy on their left and the right, and push the pointy end of government policy if called upon. So uh, they're they're good and they're led well, um, and they're they're totally dedicated to it.
1: Andrew asks when it comes to the issue of policing soft personnel, it strikes me that regular military law enforcement might be at a disadvantage would the FBI be better suited for the task? I mean, I guess he's asking, has NCIS been up to the task as far as the enforcement and accountability aspect um, in the special operations community?
2: I would say the problems start when the leadership within the special operations community isn't doing what they should do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the very first people that should be doing anything should be the leaders that are closest to the campfire and if they for some reason their moral compass isn't right then yeah i mean it, it it kind of falls outside of their control or if maybe something that somebody within the soft community has done that's so egregious it 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 shouldn't be it shouldn't be held accountable by a member in the soft community you know i mean let's talk like sexual assault or something like that that needs to be handled by somebody outside the organization because it's so egregious
0: yeah
2: um you know and and to that i'm like hey i i don't i don't know any soft leader that would be like oh wait like somebody's been up to something that egregious like okay you want to come in here as like either a federal federal entity or ncis and we need to clean this out. Like we need to put chemo on this cancer before it becomes, you know, like it mesticizes. Yeah, let's do that. Jack um, and I have
0: to oh go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> sorry. No, I but I was gonna say like that's the rare exception. You know, I you know, that's it seems to be like that's what's kinda out there in the media world and that's that's kind of what I've tried to counterbalance a bit through being an A you know, an ABC news contributor, is it that's like the the one percent every now and then there's 99 percent that day in and day out like god damn it like you know they're ready to give their lives they're training they're dedicating their entire professional lives to this core skill set and to be able to contribute to you know, the national efforts and policy. And,
1: I, I, I and totally see your, your point, Eric, but I mean, you also have to concede here that there has been a whole string of problems. I mean, there's a dev group operator yep. allegedly involved in murdering a green beret in, uh, uh, yep. in, in, in Molly. And, in, uh, and then we had yep. a, a Delta force operator recently murdered along with another guy out in the, you know, training areas of Fort Bragg, Yep. maybe some yep. drugs involved. I mean, The strain. I mean, we could maybe blame it at least partially on the strains of twenty years of warfare that it's it's kind of pulled things apart at the seams. But I mean, we do have some problems. As much as I agree that most of the guys are are doing the right thing, right? That shouldn't necessarily Mm -hmm. color the entire you know special operations community.
2: Yeah, I know. I I agree. You're right, and you know, I kind of go back to you know, the guys that are closest to the campfire
1: mm, um, need to take care of it.
2: They need to take care of it. And, you know, if, <laughs> if, if the message at, at that level is nope, mm-mm, not here. And if you think that, and, and it's, you know, it's probably stepping stones, right? I mean, yeah, let's, let's take the, you know, the guys that are found dead on a training range in North Carolina and drugs involved. And like, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I've read the articles on it. Um, you know, it's like they didn't just magically go from day one yeah, to right. day night. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, two hundred ninety nine right. with you know cocaine and methamphetamines and all right. this, yeah, and end up with a couple bullets in the chest Some, of the head, or head. I, I can't remember this. Yeah.
1: for a Yeah, time.
2: no, I mean, yeah. dude, that's something that progressed with time. That that probably had ten different injects that a leader, whether it be an enlisted or an officer had the opportunity to intervene on. And unfortunately, maybe they didn't. So that's why I say like those closest to the campfire need to remember about, you know, what the, what, what those units stand for, what those things stand for. And Hey, if guys aren't right for it, then they need to be shown the off ramp, right? But they need to be shown the off ramp in the right ways with, hey, like, do you have PTSD? Do you have these problems? Like, and let's take care of you as, but like, not, not no with uh, with anger, but no with support. But the answer is no, because dude, it's you, you've gone beyond the bounds.
0: The other thing I think that is challenging and we can all, you know, sit sort of in our moral high ground when, when we aren't the direct recipient of the results. But I think the, the military needs to change the way that it grades its officers and deals with officers. Like if, if a Colonel finds out about, you know, a, a problem in his unit and reporting that problem is going to be a black mark on his or her record, right? Like this happened in their unit, then somebody who then it's not hard to see how somebody who has spent you know the last 15 years of their career is going to try to bury something in order to preserve their career like it's not that hard to see why that happens like if if a an officer or a leader addresses a problem and tries to correct a problem you can't necessarily hold them accountable if that problem happened under their watch you know it goes back to the whole you know if if one soldier gets a DUI then the, the PL is going to get called up to the carpet because because it, that soldier was their responsibility. Yeah,
1: but, but if we're talking about like murdering a dude in a war zone, like that is the commander's responsibility.
0: No, I it, – it is to a degree. But if you're – it's the same thing if you're the, like a senior manager at a company and one of your employees goes out. Like you cannot control everything. Like you can foster a, a culture – you can set set these moral left and rights, but you still can't control everything that everybody does under you. And for an officer to pay for, you know, the the sins of their troops, if they if if.
2: Yeah, if, so case in point here, here Dave. Uh, <clears throat> 2010. Uh, Rest hostage rescue operation gone wrong. A hostage was killed by the rescue force. Turned out she was British. Um, potentially may or may not have been a, 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 a British military spy that was kind of trying to work her way into a sensitive area in, in Afghanistan to target some HPIs. Um, the, the 05 at the time did not know uh, it seemed as if she had been killed by a suicide vest. Um, and the way that the, the video footage kind of supported that. And so um, did, did not know that, that it was actually an explosion that was caused by the rescue force. And then when the 06 um, at the time got some higher def video footage, then they realized what had happened. So um In a very professional way and in a very one-on-one way, and I respect both these guys to this day, the 06 in an isolated manner showed the video to the 05 because he had to see the reaction of the 05 to know whether or not that guy actually knew about what had gone on or not. And the answer was he did not know, and he was shocked when he saw it. And that confirmed every single thing that the 06 needed to know. And then they jointly came out with what had happened. And and this was after the queen of England had called president Obama and said, I know you guys did everything you could, but there's a British citizen that lost her life, you know, like God rest her soul. And now you have a president calling a queen and saying, it didn't quite happen like that uh-huh. 72 hours later. Okay. So fast forward, but they came out cleanly and they said it and yes. Um, were they personally held accountable for the actions of their, of the unit? No. Were the members within the unit that made those particular decisions on a hostage rescue that were outside of what we typically would do in a hostage rescue were they allowed to continue with the unit? No. Were we public within the people that n- needed to know about the way that we handled it? Yes, we were public and we told them exactly what we had done. And so the 05 is now an 07 in the Navy and one of the best SEAL officers I've ever worked for. The 06 is now the future Central Command Commander, General Carrilla that's coming right behind General McKenzie here in like a couple months. So. Yes, it can be done. Uh-huh. Absolutely mistakes are made. I, I believe it's on I believe it's the way that they are handled when they're made and the ability for those units to hold themselves accountable that resonates above and below the chain of command mm-hmm. and how it's perceived both ways. So that's a vignette, yeah. a little bit long, a little bit complicated, but complex, and to your point on you can absolutely survive it as a careerist and you can absolutely maintain standards within your units yeah but it takes strong people and it takes a hell of a lot of leadership because you don't make friends all the way you do it right. there's no way so that that's, that's what I, that that's what i saw along the way yeah and that's what i learned from it. uh
1: this one's a little bit more lighthearted, i think uh Isaac Isaac asks, have you have you ever have you ever encountered any from anyone from Alpha or Spetsnaz, uh the, on the Russian side? No. Brad But I
2: drank but I drank some some hardcore homemade uh moonshine with some Lithuanian soft guys um that was such hardcore moonshine it made my gums recede away from my teeth for like a week. One time at Christmas. <laughs> So that's his course. I got this, to that's get nice. away from it.
1: Like, ah, <laughs> yeah, no, the Lithuanians are no joke. Um, Brad, you, I think you already already answered this, he, but he says issues are things you think senior NSW leadership can improve upon. Um, I think we kind of covered that. Uh, Jade hmm. Baker, uh, based on what you have heard. When he, oh, this is a weird one. When he was killed, was Obl's beard dyed black or gray and undyed? I don't
2: know. I don't know. We may never know. I mean, I don't know. I yeah, I could I could make a phone call or two, but uh, I you know, uh, apparently a lot of that um, the sensitive side exploitation material was pornographic films. And whether or not UBL was dying in a beard or not, um, he, he might've been. Maybe the
1: least of I, our worries.
2: I, I think the best two things about Bin Laden were that there were a couple of five, five, six holes in the chest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay. This is the last question I'm going to take here. What do you think about the double standard of going after an enlisted operator for years in court and not going through the review process? And may, I... I Have to suspect he's talking about that they sometimes officers get more of a free pass when it comes to publishing or speaking publicly as opposed to the enlisted side.
2: Yeah, that's one that kind of goes round and round. Um, And uh, you know, yeah, it's ah, that. That's, that's it. That's, that's absolutely a a tough question. And I appreciate that one from, from whoever uh, keyed in on this. You know, the message from senior leadership is be a quiet professional yet. It was completely sanctioned by the Navy to have active duty guys. And they put out the entire um, movie. Um, I think it's like, with valor or oh, something like a, that.
1: Act of valor.
2: Act of valor. Sorry. Um, and uh it's a dichotomy of messaging and it's mm-hmm. not consistent and it doesn't work well. Um and then you have senior leaders saying be a quiet professional and yet you have, you know, like Admiral Craven's coming out with a book. Uh vice versa, you have, you know, enlisted guys um, you know, that are, you know, like um you know, Mark Owens with his book. Um, So yeah, at the end of the day, I wish that, uh, and and I understand like the mode, not the motivations, but I understand the analysis that has led to both sides of it.
1: Right. Right.
2: Um, I I wish that there would be some sort of, you know, like a a, a 10 commandments from, from, from Moses that would say, this is what we're going to do for the next 50 years as a soft operator in the Navy. Um, and I wish that people would, would stick to it. It's going to take a damn strong leader to come up with that and put that out, but put that out in a way that will resonate both to officer and enlisted. Um, maybe Wyman's the right man. Uh, I worked for him extensively. His name's Wyman Howard. He's, the the, you know, the, the spec war commander right now. Um, he's a damn strong personality and he's a great leader. I've, I worked for him. I love working for him and I'd, I'd go work for him tomorrow. Um, or maybe it would be Admiral Matt Burns or Admiral um, Mitch Bradley. I mean, those are all three very strong guys with a healthy operational backgrounds and a lot of perspective. But it's got to take somebody like that mm-hmm. that's going to be able to do that because it it drives angst on both sides of the officer and enlisted sure. sides within the community. Um, it's a great question. I I appreciate it. I I wish there was an easier answer for it. Um, we we see
0: it. I mean, we see yeah. it everywhere though too because we see like if somebody was like a federal like with the agency and say they were a GS thirteen, like the um, the publication review board. May treat their book totally different than they would somebody. Oh, God, yeah. Somebody who is yeah. SIS with mm-hmm. more political clout. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, right. You know th- that the the uh, any review board is going to be less likely to. Censors, you know, edit something that, you know, somebody like McRaven or somebody, you know, a, a, an yeah, admiral
1: or, or a general comes out with. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm a bi- CIA
2: director versus an analyst. And right. I, I, I'm also it's the same thing. Yeah. I,
1: I'm also biased on my end and I can go on and on about this. I'll try to be uh, concise. I, when when we get out of the military, there's a pretty big stark difference between the enlisted side, and the officers. You guys can go work for, like, think tanks. You can get blue-chips jobs. You can go work in finance. Like, if you're an enlisted Your job's guy. A target. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. That, that's what, when I got out of the military in the little TAPS workshop, I was a Green Beret at the time. I put in my MOS. It tells you what job you're qualified for on the outside. It said security guard. Like, there is just such a stark difference between the officer and the enlisted side as far as the opportunities when you get out of the military. And, and I don't say that as an excuse for um, inappropriate behavior, if we're going to, you know, use that term. But there is a pretty big difference. Like, for an E6 to get out of the military and walk on to, like, a Ph.D. program or to go, you know, hang out at the Brookings Institute as a fellowship program, like, that, those opportunities do not exist. And for it's us.
0: all your fault, Eric. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I started I <laughs> god damn. I started a company with one other dude. Well well speaking, and, and, speaking and our whole and our whole company is based on like let's let's continue to serve a higher purpose. Sp- and speaking
1: of that, so like, er, er, Eric – I
2: mean like you know, we're not we're not like you know you know, like we're rubbing two nickels together.
1: Tell, tell, tell us, <laughs> tell us about how you met another previous guest of the show, Mick Mulroy. How you guys met and started the Lobo Institute. How did that come about?
2: No, it's um, Mick's a great guy, and he and I both have we we found through time that we just had similar philosophies on the highest thing to prioritize was the goal and not either personal egos or, or uh, organizational um, fracture side, just, you just got to get to the goal. We, we met briefly in Afghanistan in skin in 2010, maybe 11. Um, it's a little bit blurry there, but we really started working together in 2012, 13 out of Kenya when we were trying to get guys or, operators and intel folks back into Somalia to, to properly deal with the Al Qaeda in East Africa problem. Um, and, you know, he was the lead for the agency's paramilitary side, I was the lead for the for the military JSOC side. And together, we had to figure out how to how to get our teams molded and driving in the same direction and, and go after that problem. And through that, we both realized kind of what drove the other guy. And we knew that we had similar goals and similar ways of attacking problems and we were very well meshed together. So then we started talking about life after the government. Um, and, uh, and you know, from 2012 onward, we kind of started planning a, a business that would um, be centered on international conflict resolution and yet bring our combined perspectives between a, an agency, long-time agency background to a long-time military, you know, kind of tier one background to organizations that typically don't have it. So, you know, we do help the ABC news kind of craft their, their content so that it's accurate. Um, we worked for a year for the United nations um, specifically helping them uh Come about designing um, a way for Yemeni government officials to stay alive in in Yemen, um, and it's it's more or less like kind of setting up like a secret service for Yemenis, um, Yemeni elected officials to have a security force that can keep them alive over time as they're kind of working through their civil war. So we did that for the UN. Um, we continue to to work for a number of of institutions like that, um, that are all based on long term stability and security. Um, So that's what the Logo Institute's about. We've got a number of extraordinarily strong, talented, uh, expert cadre um, from various backgrounds. And we kind of pull and piece out of those teams and say, hey, here's a project opportunity. Here's kind of what it's about. Do you folks want to be a part of it? And, you know, to date, They've been like, absolutely. And it's not just, you know, former soft operators are part of it. Um, We've got a lady that used to be, she was a child refugee, um, you know, and then, and now she's a, a child psychologist for, you know, kind of like war torn areas is her specialty. And we've got a former child soldier and we've got, a guy that was the chief of staff of the White Helmets, which is kind of like the nine one one rescue force that would go into bombed out buildings in Syria and dig people out of rubble and stuff like that. So it's it's a wide mix of people. I saw that have extraordinary- and,
1: uh, Andrew Milbourne is one of your advisors too. Yeah, he, yeah. He'll he'll be yeah. here in studio in two weeks. Oh,
2: solid personality. Yeah. Yeah, really you good guys, guy. I- I'll, I'll key into that discussion All right. well, yeah, <laughs> sure. We, he's yeah. been
0: in studio before, but we only remember like the last half or the first half of that interview because we put What think, were you guys? I think the three of us went through a bottle and a half yeah. of LaFroix yeah. that night.
1: <laughs> so like, yeah, one, of, one of the Andy. things you guys are working on at the Lobo Institute, or correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, there's a, you're working with uh, end child soldiering uh, advocacy programs. It's your passion. It's your non- non-profit, right?
2: Yep. So, Mick and I were both. Uh, I, I was actually on hiatus from Damneck, and I was at Sock Africa, and I was, you know, working a number of problems on the dark continent. Uh, he was the chief of station in Uganda, um, and he, he came across this this story, um, and it was actually an interpreter that we were using to interpret some of the some of the intercepts to target this, uh, a true menace to society named Joseph Coney, who's responsible for abducting upwards of 20,000 kids out of their villages, mobilizing them into an army and then then basically creating the entire Darfur crisis um, with these child soldiers. So Mick met this guy, uh, started to understand his whole story and turns out he was abducted at 14 went through this horrible indoctrination process, then became a fighter for Joseph Coney. He's been shot six times. Um, and the last time he was shot, he was actually hit by an RPG that kind of came down tangentially, it ricocheted off his off his shoulder. Uh, but the fins basically tore his right arm almost completely off. They thought he was dead. They came back to bury him in the morning, his eyes were kind of blinking. Anyway, He then becomes a radio operator because he can't carry a gun anymore. Well, then he becomes Joseph Coney's radio operator. Now he spends years with Joseph Coney and he totally knows him. He also falls in love, starts having a couple kids out in the jungle. Um, And it's this whole story about like the human spirit, never say die, love. You know, we can, it's an incredible story. Mick and I were both, we both established a relationship with Anthony for a number of reasons, but through it, we started to understand the power of who he was in his story. We decided to make a documentary about it. We made a documentary on iPhones and GoPros, and um, we started to be asked to show it uh, to like master's level international affairs type curriculums and stuff at Yale and other places. And in the process of that, a New York times um, author who's an extraordinarily successful man, his name is Mark Solomon. He's a, he's a Montana based author saw it and said, I, I need to write that. That's that story needs to see the, the broader, the broader audience needs to understand the, what that story has to, you know, to move them and inspire them. So anyway, Mark is now in the process of writing that book, kind of as we speak. Um, and the nonprofit side of Lobo Institute is end in child soldiering, which is about being an advocate for those that have no voice of advocacy, and that those are that are exploited. I mean, grown ups start the wars, and yet when those wars go on for years and years and years, it's kids that end up fighting them. And that's exactly what we've seen in the Middle East. I mean, that's exactly what's happening with the Cubs of the Caliphate with ISIS and the Middle East and in Yemen. And, you know, I mean, some of the first people I fought in Afghanistan were 12 years old because their dads were dragging them to gunfights. Mm.
1: War Warpups. Yeah.
2: uh, That's not right. Mm -hmm. So that's what in-child soldiering is about. Mick and I feel like we have enough perspective to be able to channel uh, relief into those areas that need it the most through a nonprofit called Ed Child Soldiering that was inspired by the story of Anthony and Florence Polka from Northern Uganda that were child soldiers.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Hey, uh, it's, check- it's,
2: it's, it's, it's right in its infancy right now. I would say that the book is supposed to come out kind of spring of 2023. I think that when the general public internationally reads it, I think that they will understand the ability, their ability to help shape the problem for the better. And that's where I think in-child soldiering will start to get more momentum. And then mechanized job will go from Lobo Institute, a for-profit thing, even though it's for international conflict and really good reasons. I think it'll start to to weigh out more on the end child soldiering piece.
0: So for those of you who are watching, um, I put the link. It it is Lobo, L-O-B-O, institute.org is their primary website. But then if you go slash, is that a slash or a backslash? I don't know. But if you go slash donate, that will take you to the end child soldiering uh, page. There's a donate button there, guys. Throw them five bucks. Throw them a little throw, throw a little cash this way. Like let's let's help these guys get get this off the ground because child soldiering it, it, it's it's a horrible thing that like we don't even deal with in the United States. We don't even understand, but it's such a common practice in so many other countries.
2: So- yeah, and I would say if you're on the fence, read the book. If you're still on the fence after you read that book, you can hit me up. Write an email. Info at loboinstitute.org. It'll get to me, and and I, I, I would like to understand how you think that this is not a responsible thing to do.
0: The, the and the for those of you who don't know, the general process of recruiting a child soldier isn't just taking a kid and say, "Hey, kid, here's a gun." They take a, they go into their village, they make them do something absolutely horrific in their village to somebody in their village, and. You can use your imagination because you know it depends on what it is.
1: Go, go watch the episode we did with Bob Adolf, who worked in Sierra Leone. He'll tell you all about it.
0: Yeah, but <clears throat> but to where to where they now have so much shame and are and feel like such an outsider that they're alienated from everything. They feel like they can never go back, and 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 they just become these recruits, and it's it's so sad.
1: Well, Eric. I really appreciate the work you're doing here and sharing your all of these stories with you up to and including the advocacy work that you're working on now and, and kind of you know laying all of this out for us on one of your Friday nights. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. And I really appreciate all the viewers who joined us tonight. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, I hope you'll come back next week. We're going to have Mark Giaconia on the show who served in 10th Special Forces Group. He... He actually had some overlap with Mick Mulroy when they infiltrated uh, into Iraq prior to the invasion in 2003. He uh, was one of the SF guys there. Uh, we
0: have one last question, I think, from Andrew. Um, have the ICC in, uh, indictments of LRA fighters helped or hindered resolving the LRA problem?
2: Indifferent.
1: Yeah, Indifferent. Uh, yeah.
2: I'm going to say. The, yeah, the LRA problem is is kind of so far into the jungle There's been, I think, one or maybe two guys that have gone to the ICC, and it it really isn't a deterrent or a hindrance to yeah, it's ending the problem there. Yeah, no,
1: I I, I'd agree. Thanks, thanks, guys.
0: Yeah, and um, and where else can they find you? You can find you at Logo Institute. Um, they can find you. You you write articles for ABC News for ABC.
2: Yeah, ABC News. We also kind of work um for it's called the Middle East Institute, which is uh, a think tank. We put out some more like military applicable things there, or, you know, we also do some things for veteran advocacy, uh, which is called VAHA Veterans um, uh, Alliance for Holistic Alternatives, which is helping people, veterans specifically through processing trauma. Um, So VAHA, we're on the board of directors, and that's about, you know, you never stop being a leader, even if you get out of the teams. And this is about leadership after what the nation has been asked us to do. And that's where you can find uh, Mick and I, and this really good uh, a Marine who's been through a lot of trauma. His name's Gary Hess, um, but it, it's within the Baja um,
1: nonprofit. So, guys, please uh, like, share this video, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, and. Down in the description, there's a link to our Patreon. If you want to support the channel, get access to the bonus episodes and segments we do. And also, there's merch down there for coffee mugs and all that (laughs) good stuff. So uh, I think that's about it. It, uh, Eric, can I keep you for like another 10 minutes just for the bonus segment real quick, if that's cool?
2: Totally cool. And I would just say for the broader audience, one, thank you very much for your time. Uh, And two, thank you very much. Jack and Dave for allowing me the opportunity to be a part of your podcast.
1: Thank you got you. it, man. Anytime. Our, uh,
0: thank you for for spending your Friday night with and,
1: us. We and really yeah. We hope it. we can have you and Mick back sometime soon talk about some of your other projects. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. BFFs. We got some good things.
1: Yeah. All right.